So in this podcast, I'm going to go through a case study of a married couple who wants to put their estate plan in order for themselves and for their children, and maybe even for their potential grandchildren. So before I do that, though, I want to tell a little story about Fred. Fred was a, a single guy. He worked in his father's business. His father had been very successful building up the business, and his father got sick, and he knew that there wasn't a whole lot of time left, um, that his father just wasn't going to be around for, you know, certainly not more than a year. So at that point, you know, Dan felt it was time to uh, maybe, maybe meet a woman and get married. So one evening at a restaurant, he met a really beautiful woman. His, her, her beauty took his breath away. He approached her. They started talking. He said, "Look, I'm 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 I may look like an ordinary guy, but um, my father's not well. He's going to pass away in a few months, or maybe not more than a year. And and when he does, I'm going to inherit twenty million dollars." So the woman was kind of impressed, and she took she took his business card. Well, three days later, Dan had a stepmother. So there you have it. Um, all right, um, going back to our, our case study, um, first thing I'm going to say is don't dare take this information and just go apply it, you know, word for word to your circumstances. Everybody's different. Everybody has different objectives, different family circumstances. Everybody owns different things. And so the only right way to get it right is to work with an estate planning attorney who, who understands, fully understands what you're trying to accomplish and guides you down a path that you feel great about so that you know everything's in order. So that's, that's my disclaimer up front. But I, I thought it would be helpful to, to put together this podcast and just give you some ideas and some concepts, concepts that that we uh, handle when we're putting estate planning programs in place for people. So <clears throat> I did mention everybody's circumstances are different, but let's, you know, just for purposes of a case study, uh, let's take a look at some potential specific circumstances. So let's say you've got a, a married couple, husband and wife, and their total estate is roughly about $3 million. So let's say, for example, the husband has an IRA. You know, he worked for many years at the company, had his 401k. When he died, he rolled over his 401k into his IRA. Let's say they had another half a million dollars in a brokerage account, stocks, bonds, mutual funds. They have a nice home. Uh, let's say they have another piece of property, maybe a condo on the beach in Florida. Um, they've obviously got uh, several bank accounts. They've got vehicles. They have a boat. So kind of the, the typical scenario when you have some fairly successful people that have accumulated some things. They've got some children. They've got two children who are adults now. Maybe one child is married. One child isn't. The, the children are in their uh, late 20s, early 30s. Husband just retired. Wife hadn't worked in a while. Um, and they've never done any kind of estate planning before. So it certainly is on both of their to-do lists. And now that he's not working anymore, they have the time and, 
uh, to devote to getting things in order. So one of the first things that gets determined is, you know, in, in their terms, what they're hoping to accomplish. And here's where it can vary from person to person, from couple to couple, even from spouse to spouse, it can vary. But their concerns are, um, you know, they've worked hard, they've saved, they've accumulated. They want to make sure that uh, they stay in control of everything. Um, one of their first concerns is to make sure that the surviving spouse is taken care of and in control of all of the marital assets after one of them dies. That's common. And then they also want to make sure, and we're going to keep it simple here, that everything goes to their you know, two adult children 50-50 after they both pass away. Um, they did expressly state that the oldest child is the one that, that they'd want to handle things when they both passed away just because he's the oldest and they felt like that was the right thing to do if they needed to name somebody. So obviously they want to do what everyone else does. They want to avoid taxes. They want to make it as simple as they can for their family. They don't want to be there to be a whole lot of bureaucratic red tape. So, you know, they mention kind of keeping the government out it out of it to the extent that they can. So that's what they expressed. So now we'll go through, you know, what that discussion typically involves. And we'll start with the, what they mean by making sure that the surviving spouse stays in control of everything they have. So there's, there's maybe three different ways to do that. Before I get into that, you know, sometimes, not often, because I've asked a lot of married couples, but sometimes what the married couple wants is that when one spouse dies, they'd like to see some assets go to the children right then. That's the exception rather than the norm. Most married couples feel like they want the surviving spouse to stay in control of all of the assets simply because they don't know how long that surviving spouse is going to live. And so... They want to make sure that that surviving spouse has access to all of the couple's assets uh, for living expenses, for long-term care needs, um, for whatever they might need. And then that couple would like to see the assets go to the family or the children after both spouses pass away. So, but even though they want to leave things to each other, that's a, that's a broad and vague term we have to dig a little deeper and talk about the different ways you can leave things to your spouse. I'll give you an example. Kind of the simplest way to understand it is, is do you want to leave things so that your surviving spouse has that complete ownership and control to do whatever they want to with it? Kind of simple, kind of easy to understand. When we talk about the pros and cons of things, we sometimes, you know, have to bring up, well, if, if, you know, one spouse dies and they leave everything they own to their surviving spouse, then now it, it will be set up so that when the surviving spouse dies, things go to the children then. But if the first spouse to die leaves ownership of everything to the surviving spouse, the surviving spouse could, you know, redirect all of that to someone else, maybe a second spouse, maybe someone who um, 
exerted influence over that surviving spouse. And so there's risk that the children may not wind up with the assets after the surviving spouse dies. So some people, however, say that's okay. I want my spouse to completely control everything. I know my spouse is going to leave it to our kids, but if they want to leave some of it to somebody else, I want to give them the flexibility to do that. So that's that first option, that complete ownership and control to the surviving spouse. The second option is when the first spouse dies, and let's say they had $3 million, and let's say, you know, half of it is the wife's, half of it's the husband's. The second option really um, provides for the spouse, but it gives some assurance that assets will go to the children after the, after the second spouse dies. So under that example, let's say husband dies first, their estate planning is arranged so that wife, of course, continues to control and own her half of the $3 million. But as to the husband's half, his part would go into a trust and those assets would be available for the wife to, to use and we would define that. And then when the wife later dies, whatever remains in the husband's trust would revert back to their children or the husband's children, whatever the case may be. So it's a way to provide for your spouse, but have assurance that when your surviving spouse dies, assets will revert back to the children because it's arranged so that the surviving spouse can't redirect that to someone else. So here in Louisiana, we have a third alternative. People in Louisiana are somewhat familiar with the term usufruct. So again, that's where you leave what's called the usufruct to your spouse. And that spouse can, in layman's terms, use the assets. But when that spouse later dies, that spouse is accountable back to what's called the naked owners or the heirs of the first spouse to die. And so that surviving spouse's estate has a debt to the naked owners, which must be satisfied at the termination of the usufruct, which is typically when the surviving spouse dies, or in some cases when the surviving spouse dies or remarries, whichever occurs first. So those are some of the decisions that we take couples through, how they're going to leave things to their spouse. And then perhaps the next decision that we go through is how we leave it to their kids. So in our case study, the couple said that their children were late 20s, early 30s, very responsible. Um, so in a nutshell, um, the parents said, you know, while we do have $3 million and it certainly appears that each child would inherit $1.5 million because we have two children, um, let's just go ahead and leave it outright to them. They're very responsible. They're mature. They've got good careers. And so let's leave it outright to them after we both pass away. Now, in some circumstances, we have a different discussion when the parents want the children to get the assets over time, either because maybe the children aren't responsible, maybe there's substance abuse issues, maybe they are special needs children, maybe there's some serious marital problems with the children that uh, the parents want to protect the child from or the child's inheritance from. 
So there's a lot of different ways parents can leave things to the children, but for purposes of our case study, let's just say they left it outright to their children. Now, there's some special issues that require, you know, special attention. One of the assets that I mentioned earlier that they owned was I mentioned that they had an IRA. In fact, an IRA is going to be in only one person's name. So for purposes of our case study, let's say, of course, the husband, as I mentioned, owned the IRA. He was the one who built up the 401k while he worked. He rolled it over into an IRA in his name when he, when he retired. And so there's some tax issues that need to be addressed because um, no, no income tax has been paid on that IRA money, that traditional IRA money. And so we would have a discussion about the distribution rules, not only for the husband and not only for the wife if the husband were to pass away, but also for the kids and how those funds would go into an inherited IRA. And there's a completely different set of distribution rules when a non-spouse inherits an IRA. So we'd probably chat about that and see if that would warrant um, adjusting anything on beneficiary designation. So there's a discussion there about the taxes. Speaking of taxes, we, we would not spend more than maybe a minute on the federal estate tax because I would tell them we have a new estate tax exemption. While we do have a 40% estate tax, I'd tell them that you know, 11.2 million was exempt, and for married couples, double that, 22.4 million, because each spouse has their own exemption. And so we would quickly disregard the fact that we needed to do any kind of, um, em, em, employ any kind of strategy to avoid estate tax. It just wasn't necessary. In fact, it's even better that because they, they asked about whether they should give some assets to their kids during their lifetime, but we talked about how it's even better for them to keep ownership of those appreciated assets, allow the step up in basis to happen when they die. That way, if the children inherit those at a stepped up basis, uh, they can sell assets and incur no capital gains tax. So those are some of the tax discussions we have, not much discussion on the estate tax, some discussion on the income tax, particularly as it relates to IRAs, and then some significant discussion about the capital gains tax, more on that in a minute. So um, going, in fact, let's discuss that now, because when we, when we talked about that, how they want to leave things to each other at the first death, tax law can have an impact on that because we want to make sure or they want to make sure that they avoid as much tax as possible. They like the idea of getting what we call the double double step up in basis. So here in community property states like Louisiana, when one spouse dies, all the community property gets a step up in basis. That's, that's a good thing. And if they make that bequest at the first death the right way, then the entire estate gets a second step up in basis when the surviving spouse dies to eliminate any tax on appreciation that may have occurred from the date of the first spouse's death until the date of the surviving spouse's death. So be aware of that. That double step up is a good thing. That was really a um, non-issue years ago because the focus was not on avoiding capital gains tax, it was on avoiding estate tax. Well, now the focus has shifted from avoiding estate tax 
to avoiding capital gains tax and income tax. So you got to address all that. All right, then there'd be another discussion about who will be in charge if they become incapacitated. So we want to make sure that all the legal planning is in place so that if, if they get to a point where they can't sign documents related to their IRA, they can't sign to transfer their vehicle or their boat um, when it's time to sell or transfer those things, if they don't have the legal planning in place and they get to a point where they can't transact their own affairs, then somebody, likely a family member, will hire lawyers like myself, will sue that incapacitated individual, have the sheriff serve papers on that person, allow for all of the delays and court-appointed lawyers in an attempt to have that person declared legally incompetent and have a judge appoint a legal guardian or what is called a curator for that person. That legal process really is a nightmare and it can typically be avoided by having the legal planning in place on the front end. So um, we would have discussions and, and they both indicate that if one of them became incapacitated and either financial or medical decisions needed to be made for that person or medical records needed to be obtained, um, then they would have wanted, you know, their spouse to be the first one who could do that. And in the event that their spouse couldn't, they wanted their oldest son to be next in line. So sometimes people want both of their kids or either of the kids or, you know, geography determines some of that maturity of the children determines some of that, but they wanted their spouse first and then their oldest child to be able to transfer transact for them if they were incapacitated. So where we're at so far is um, they wanted to stay in control when one spouse, they wanted the survivor to stay in control, both pass away, goes to the kids equally, the oldest in charge. If they're incapacitated, they wanted to, eat, wanted to make it simple for the other of them and then their oldest to be able to handle things for them. They said, what about if we're on life support? So there'd be a discussion about the living will declaration, whether they'd want to make their wishes known in writing for their family, for their physicians, so that if they're in that vegetative state with no chance of recovery, their children, for example, would not have to be burdened with that decision to withdraw life support machines in life. They would have documented their wishes and then their children would just have to you know, honor their wishes. So there'd be a discussion about that. So maybe at that point, we'd get into a technical discussion about whether this would be done through wills or through living trusts. And so we'd likely discuss whether they'd want to do all of this through wills. And if they did, then, for example, when the first spouse died, the husband, the wife would come hire us lawyers or some lawyers like us, and we'd have to go through the court process because uh, all those assets that were in his name when he died, they owned the house together, they owned the brokerage account together, they owned the out-of-state property together. There would need to be a probate, or in Louisiana we called it a succession, here in Louisiana, and then there'd be another one in that, to, in that other state where they owned the out-of-state property, so there'd be another set of lawyers to hire when one of them died. And then that those court processes would transfer everything to the surviving spouse. And then when the surviving spouse died, the kids would 
hire lawyers in Louisiana, another set of lawyers out of state uh, to go through the probate process in those states. So we would discuss whether they'd want to have um, that avoid probate, revocable living trust, have those properties, have that brokerage account in the trust. So when one of them died, none of that stuff would frozen would be frozen. Things would just stay in trust for the surviving spouse with the surviving spouse's trustee. So in cases like that, often when the first spouse dies, the, the surviving spouse doesn't need legal help, doesn't need to go through a court process. Um, everything just stays in place for the surviving spouse. And then when the surviving spouse dies, if assets were in that trust, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> then very quickly, after the surviving spouse dies, that oldest son, as the successor trustee, can disperse at sell either sell assets out of the trust and divide the proceeds, or disperse assets out of the trust to the two children 50-50, all without having to go through you know lawyers and courts and judicial systems and judges. So they opted that they wanted to make things real simple, so they opted for that living trust arrangement um, to avoid that probate with a $3 million estate. Hard to predict what the probate savings would be because in Louisiana, the probate charges can be all over the map. Um, in other states, it's a fixed percentage of the assets. So in, you know, if it was a 2% of the estate charge, um, at a $3 million estate, that's a $60,000 savings perhaps that could result from you know eliminating the need to do those probates at each death. So they opted for that living trust program. Others opt for will programs. And under, under either scenario, there's all of the financial health care powers of attorney in place. There's the living will declaration. Uh, there's getting all the beneficiary designations straight. We do what we always do with the vehicles and the boats to arrange that through their legal documents. So it would be really simple for the surviving spouse and the children to get those things in their names at the appropriate time. So we'd get all that stuff straight. We'd have the tax talk um, regarding the different you know, forms of taxation and how they can you know, minimize or really avoid tax depending upon what kinds of assets they own, whether those things have appreciated, whether those things are retirement accounts that, that require you know, taxable distributions after death. So, you know, from a technical standpoint, those are some of the things that we address. And that's really probably the simplest of scenarios. We didn't get into in this case study, you know, children who have difficult marriages, have special needs, who can't handle money. We didn't get into any of the blended family issues, leaving things to grandchildren, not wanting family members to be in charge of the estate settlement. Um, how to designate um, certain children when um, when you don't want to you know offend or appear partial we didn't get into any of that so sometimes we have to get into that to make sure we get it right so um, I'm gonna say what I said earlier again don't take this information just because I said it as part of a case study and then just apply it to your circumstances Everybody's circumstance is different. It's really important that you get with the right kind of estate planning attorney, get it right the first time, and it can save you and your family a lot of grief in the future. 
So if you felt like, you know, the, the case study provided you with some value, then I'd say, um, you know, you can do a couple of things. You can get a lot more information from our YouTube channel, Rabelais Estate Planning LLC. You can subscribe to that channel, hundreds of videos there uh, to start a conversation in South Louisiana uh, where our offices are. You can simply, you know, contact our office, 866-491-3884. Uh, go to our website, RabelaisEstatePlanning.com. Um, lots of information there, updated regularly, so that you can get the latest information on what you need. So, um, you know, ideally, what happens to you is like what happened to the gentleman I met with for the first time yesterday, who said, you know, Paul, I, I looked at your website, I watched your videos, I saw how you smiled on those videos, read some of your testimonials, felt like I knew you before I even met you for the first time. So um, that's one of the reasons why we put all of this information out there. So hope this helps. Make sure you go take care of business. Hope you liked my joke on the front end. And um, we'll talk to you soon. Take care.